you find yourself in situations you might have not found yourself in, and maybe the first time you get it wrong, but it turns out you're probably going to find that yourself in that situation at a second, third, fourth, fifth time. So if you have a really high rate of learning, you get better. And what I'm just shocked at, and again, I have a big team now, I've hired a lot of people, I've found myself in a lot of different circles over the years. Some people don't learn. They stop learning. They stop growing as a person. If you stop investing yourself in wanting to learn and stop growing as a person, somebody else will do the work and outpace you. It's really surprising to me. So the rate at which you learn, if you are a good learner, can be a huge best friend. It was for me. It was one of the skill sets that absolutely allowed me to scale as a founder and as an operator and something I'm really proud of. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a show that candidly explores how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you so much. I was just learning it's a loony and a... Toonie. Toonie? Mm-hmm. Like a one and a two? Mm-hmm. How often do you go back? A few times a year. Okay. Yeah. So I was just there last weekend for my cousin's wedding. Oh, cool. And uh, it's Saskatchewan? I grew up in Saskatchewan. Is that where you go back to? Sometimes. I love going back to Saskatchewan, but I go to Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary sometimes. But like when you go home, where are you going? Home technically is Saskatchewan, but I lived in Toronto for a long time. So I have a ton of friends there. Okay. And then my, my husband's also Canadian. His parents live in BC. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Beautiful city. It's beautiful. Have they like erected a statue of you in Saskatchewan? Like, uh, are you, are you a hometown hero? No, no, You're no, no, completely no. discreet. Discreet. Discreet's good for me. You like discreet. I've I like heard discreet. you like discreet. I like discreet. You can walk around and nobody, I mean, to be fair, you could probably walk around here and nobody has any idea. It's the best. That's how you like it. I like it like that's, that. That's, that's, By design. Jovin. You're like on the Mount Rushmore of women in infrastructure. Now, I think that's a really awesome thing, but I don't know if everyone would recognize you walking around, but like, isn't that cool? Or do you think that's kind of whatever? No, no. I th- I'm so proud. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very proud. It's amazing. I yeah. love it. There's not many women in infrastructure doing what you have done. And I feel like it's kind of special for you to carry that torch. Well, I don't know if it's special, but it's, uh, it's not, it's a big responsibility. Tell me why. I guess when you say there aren't that many, then when you are the one that's doing it, then it just, by definition, it feels like a big responsibility. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. You want to do right by all those folks that have cheered you on or supporting you along the way. And hopefully you also can set the tone for others to say, oh, wow, what's this about? I'm interested in this. I want to do that too. So that's what I mean by responsibility. Do you feel pressure? Not in the negative sense of the word, yeah. not not pressure as in, this is less about being a woman in, in, in the industry, but more just being a successful high growth founder. Yeah, There's a lot of founders out there. There's a lot of people who have been on growth teams. And when you're a success story every day, the bar gets higher and higher. And what's interesting is that does come with pressure. Like when the bar gets higher every day, and I think this, again, goes to whether you're an executive, an early stage employee, like you're on the field, you're playing the game, the stakes get higher. And for a lot of people, it's the biggest job of their life. And if you really want to do a good job, and a lot of people care, often when you're at a high growth company, you care about the people, you care about the cause, you care about your customers, you care about what you're doing. And you're at some point of the story, you're not at the end yet. 
And I think it's, wow, but this is the biggest job I've ever had. And, you know, can I still give what the company needs? Because, you know, you come at different stages. I've seen through my time at Cloudflare, also just building a company for 12 years, that some people get paralyzed by that. And I think it's up to all of us, including myself, like the founders, the executives, the folks who are showing up every single day not to be paralyzed by it. And to say, okay, well, I'm going to keep learning. I don't know what this is. I'm going to meet my peers at the companies ahead of me. I'm going to have a passion. I care what I want to do. I want to, I want to keep it up. And so I think that's interesting. And paralyzed get by the pressure, about, you mean? Yeah, they get paralyzed by the pressure, the yeah. complexity, the pressure. They're not sure what to do yet next. Yeah. So they take themselves out of the game. Yeah. They, that's when they quit, you're saying? Mm-hmm. You have an expression that I've heard you typically use, which is we're just getting started. You just kind of alluded to that now. And I'm wondering, you said you've been building Cloudflare for how long? 12 years. 12 we years. Just, mm-hmm. Like at some point, when are you not just getting started? <laughs> I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious, but actually serious. I don't know. You're 12 years in, like it's a big public company. It's $16 billion market cap today in this market. That's a big, big company. When are you not just getting started? The reason why I say that, and I love that <laughs> saying, and lots of people say it uh, now, unfortunately, lots of people, lots of companies say it. So maybe I need a new saying, I guess, is what my lesson learned is, is opportunity presents itself all the time. And what I've come to appreciate is that not all opportunities are the same size or shininess. And for me at Cloudflare, we have a really huge opportunity that's very shiny. And when I say we're just getting started is, I mean, I think we've done a really good job. I'm so proud of what we built. I love the people I get to work with. I love our customers and partners. I'm very proud. But when you think about all the innings left ahead of us or all the chapters left and what we could accomplish, our vision, we've kind of very clearly laid out our strategy and our vision of what we're building. It's still so early in what's possible for this opportunity. And so to me, the reason why I say we're just getting started is I think we've done a good job, but it's a really big, shiny opportunity. So we are just getting started versus other opportunities maybe are a little bit smaller or medium size or maybe not so shiny. They're really rough. So you got to work, work really hard to polish those up. I think that's what I've come to appreciate as a founder. So going back to your framing around the pressure getting to people, because it is a lot of pressure, especially doing this every year when you're just getting started every year. Or right? every day. Or every day. Or every day. Or every day. Lots of happens or, in a year. Or so every, every day. day. That's every right. day. Or every every day. week. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Is part of it that you, as a founder of this huge, shiny opportunity, get a little bit insecure that if you let the pressure get to you, maybe not insecure, but some negative feeling that you're not going to realize the potential of this opportunity, that you're not going to be a part of that, that you're not going to be driving the company to realize the full potential of this thing. And then that's just kind of a shame. I don't know. Does that question make sense? It does make sense. Although one of the things I've come to learn is that there's so many ways to build a career or build a company or run your life. I've tried not to generalize or assign reasons to others because it's, you know, it's hard. Life is a lot more gray than so black and white. And so maybe for some, what you characterize is what comes up for others. It could be a host of other sorts of things. Um, So I don't, we'll leave that to some uh, psychology expert. (laughs) That's why you're on the show. Okay, I have another question for you, and then we can actually, I guess, start in earnest. But you said you like being under the radar. Why? It's hard when you're building a company of this magnitude in the world to stay under the radar. Why is that important to you? Sorry, I didn't mean to give you a... No, no, I you're, just... I'm trying to choose my words carefully because it's it, this is important. It's, you know, on one side... One of the best parts about being a founder is that people like you do a podcast, invite us on. 
and it gives you visibility and exposure. And that, when you're starting, I mean, that is a huge deal. And when you're in the middle, it's a huge deal. And even as you get bigger, it's a huge deal because back to the stakes get higher every day, you know, what's asked of you gets higher. And, and awareness is always every company's number one. Like it's, especially if you're early or mid or late, it's like people knowing the problems you can help solve for them to find customers. At the end of the day, revenue is queen. Like at the end of the day, companies get measured on, on the revenue they bring in. So the awareness distribution matters a lot. And when you're starting entrepreneurship, especially in the U.S., actually, I think it's one of the best things in the U.S. is a lot of people will write about you and talk about you. And it helps give you awareness and distribution and the whole venture funding. And there's all these. It's The ecosystem is set up to help identify what one day will become something big. That's amazing. On the flip side, it often becomes about the founders, and the founders are part of it. The story, I'm one, and Matthew and Lee, we wouldn't be where we are without all of us, and I'm so proud of that. I really wear that hat with a lot of pride, but it really takes a team rowing in the same direction to make it happen. And so sometimes it's it's not being under the radar, but sometimes it's like, okay, yes, I'm one leader at this company that helps make it happen for sure, but there's so many others. Sometimes I think that the founders get a disproportional about um, um, amount glamorized. of glamorized, and you know that's fun and whatnot. But really, it's you kind of want to glamorize everyone who's showing up every day and sweating the details and killing it for the customer because you are literally climbing a mountain every day when you build a company. Nothing happens. You got to create every single thing or every week or, or whatever time frame it is, depending how big you are. And so for me, I've always been a little uncomfortable being the center of attention where I'm like, sure, I'm part of it, but there's a whole team behind the scenes making this happen. And unfortunately, that often doesn't make it on the cover of the magazine, right. but I wish it did more. Yeah. And and um, it'll be interesting to see whether we start to see more of that, especially as some of the leaders who do get glamorized end up also getting torn down because they're for sure not perfect in their imperfect people. And, and you think, okay, well, maybe it isn't just about glamorizing the one leader. It's really about bringing awareness to the team. What's an interesting paradox, especially like we see it in our portfolio all the time, but you see it more broadly in the world today is that the tech leaders of this generation are technical. And generally speaking, these technical leaders are introverts. Their natural state is introverted, not extroverted. And so actually one of the muscles that is required that most of these founders have to build is this comfort being in the spotlight. And it actually sucks in a lot of ways, but it is it is a prerequisite to the job that I think a lot of people don't think about because it is a caviar problem. Like when you're starting a company, you think, okay, at some point, if people are writing about me and I have to go do podcasts with Jubin, but maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, Maybe that's a good thing for me to have to go do, but it's definitely uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's like, how do you take all the good without some of the bad that comes along with it? I think but that's, you're right. It absolutely is. I think that's a really good point and something you don't realize when you start the company, but no. it does, but it is part of your responsibility. No, it's a, it's an interesting reflection for me because this show started originally episodes zero through 45, 50 of only CR because I was really keen. So Chris Merritt, as an example, yes, was on the show. Yes, yes. And um, your former CRO. Yes. Great guy. Yes. I really wanted to shine a spotlight on the people really doing the trenches work mm-hmm. that don't get the spotlight. Yes. And then I got to do that with CMOs and then COOs. Eventually, there's only so many of those folks that I know are there, are easily accessible, are still at the company, by the way, because a lot of the time they're not at the company. And so they're somewhat restricted in their ability to tell the stories of the company, whereas the founders are usually 
more tied to that company still. And so they can speak more freely, if that makes sense. I also think in general, you have a license to speak more freely because it's your company. One of the lessons I've learned building Cloudflare is that as a founder, you can have a personality. So back to your, you can speak a little bit more freely. You can have a personality. And for those founders who really wield it, it can be really, really powerful. It's a good benefit of the job. Compare that to a professional operator. Actually, I've heard CEOs of whether it's public company or, or even private companies who say, oh gosh, you're a founder. Founders can say more, so much more than I can because they feel like they're hired into the position and that if they misspeak, they could get fired tomorrow, which is actually really interesting in this day and age, especially with how you can get messages out through different avenues, how that can be really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the tropes that you hear, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but one of the tropes that you hear is that not only how you speak is under a microphone, but even the decisions that you make in the business are under a microphone if you're not the founder. Meaning, because of the way that generally the share structure is just built, you don't have the same level of autonomy to make big, bold bets that you otherwise would if you weren't the founder. Meaning, like the canonical example we see today is if Zuckerberg wasn't running Facebook, could he make the metaverse decision that the non-founder made. I don't know. I'm not putting words into anybody's mouth, but that's what you hear. Do we got to be careful of the lessons you learn that when you hear, and I, I, I don't disagree with that. And sometimes edge cases make, uh, as Matthew, uh, my business partner would say, he's a lawyer by training, he's like, edge cases can make bad law. So, so that could maybe be an edge case and there's probably different lessons learned. But back to what you were saying, I'm a founder, I'm a business owner, I'm an operator, and now I'm a leader of a publicly traded company. Those are, oh, they're, they're all related, but they're different hats and you kind of have a different viewpoint. And one of the things I see founders make mistakes of early on is they don't hire great people, executives into their company, and then empower them to make good decisions for the company to let them scale. And actually, that's one of the ways opportunities never reach their full potential. Back to, you know, every opportunity is different, shininess, different sizes. I always think about some of the opportunities that are big, but never get reached their full potential. Why? That's one of the risks is you don't bring in a team and empower them to do great work. So I think... The inverse can be true too, is actually hire great people and go to a company where you're empowered to do great work and then treat it like it's your own and make the big calls and stick your neck out. In fact, when I think about the best people I work at at Cloudflare, they still stick their neck out to this day where they say, no, no, you're not listening to me. I know you made a decision already, but we're making the wrong one. And that is so hard in a growth company because you kind of want to fit in. You want to be liked. It's like, okay, sure, sure, sure. But that almost becomes an excuse. And so the best people are the ones who do treat it like it's their company because at the end of the day, it's back to this team rowing in the same direction. And most of the best people at these successful growth companies, they're just so invested and they bleed at Cloudflare, Cloudflare, you know, they bleed orange, they at another company be somewhere else and they just care so much. Yeah. And it's back to, I wish those were the stories we even heard more of. Yeah. And often, you know, you do these podcasts, you do the media, it's kind of like the things that all go sideways and, and wrong. And, you know, as humans, that's how we learn when things go sideways and wrong and, and all the terrible things and all the drama. There's often drama associated with this. What's interesting at Cloudflare is we've had low drama while we've been very successful, which relatively. is I think, relatively, which yep. is I think part of the reason why we're not so on the cover of magazines, because we just have low drama. There's when people are like, what's the big so what? It's like, well, we all get along. We have a great business. We're growing up and to the right. People are like, well, that's a made for Disney story. It's a little bit boring compared to some of this other drama. And it's like, well, actually, I would weigh that than rather that than something else. It's interesting. So on the talent piece, can I yes. revisit that for sure. a second? What's interesting is that the Advice is well-worn. Everybody knows we need to hire great people as early as possible, empower them, 
and enable them. Yes. <laughs> why is that so hard to it's do? It's so hard. Why is, that, why is that so, like, were you able to just nail that in the beginning? I mean, the answer is yes and no. I yeah. mean, we've made our shirt. I have lots sure. of scar tissue. Sure. I've got a lot of scar tissue, a lot more gray hair and things that you've learned along the way. And I think that's every growth company and you kind of back to you, take it seriously. You yeah. learn how fast can you learn is your superpower. I love that. And of course we've made mistakes. So I don't want to say we got yeah. everything perfectly. So it was not that. I guess that's the point. You can take some of the edge off it. Does everything doesn't have to be perfect, but how fast do you make adjustments or change? But early on, we did really bring in great people and people who really believed in this mission. Our mission is to help build a better internet. It helps when you have a big mission. That's a huge mission. And there's a lot of people who came to work at Cloudflare for that mission. And so if you have this big lofty mission, there is also equally a number of people who told us we are crazy. What do you mean? Who do you think you are? You're 12 people. You think you're going to help build a better internet? What does that even mean? Well, that's okay. You know, over time they started to become believers, but you found the people who were like, that sounds cool to be part of it. I want to be, I want to, I'm the engineer who wants to care about what I'm doing. This sounds like a big mission. I do care about the internet a lot. I want to be part of it. And that was really helpful to us early on. I learn from people ahead of me. I, I go to, I listen to all your podcasts. I go to the conferences. I find people a couple years ahead of where we always have been at Cloudflare and I learn from them. What are your biggest mistakes? What are you dealing with now? What advice do you have for me? And I got that advice really, really often what you just said. It's all about talent. It's all about talent. It's all about your frontline managers. It's all about great leaders. It's all about hiring people in and empowering them to do great work. Don't micromanage your executives that come in. And again, we were not always perfect, but we would pivot when we started to realize we were making mistakes. And I think because of that, we got it more right than we got it wrong. And I think if you just look, how can I prove that to you? If you just look at tenure of people on our team, very long. I mean, of course we have turnover, but it's much lower than you would look at compared to another technology company that looks like us. And so I think we're really proud of that. And then the other thing that I like to say and this was really interesting. And this was true from early on. When you're a 40-person company, I mean, we're so different today. Today, we're over 3,000 people. So it's just like a publicly traded, lots of people, you can look us up. We have a stock price, like it's like a market cap. It's a very different situation. But when you get started, it's hard to know who's going to be the winners and who's aren't going to be the winners. You understand that. You're an investor. It's hard to know who's going to be the winner, what's hype, what's true, what's lasting, what's not, what's going to be big, what's going to be small. And when you're like 40 or 50 people, it is really hard to get someone really great that's done this before to come join your company because they have lots of job opportunities. They really, really do. And one thing that was interesting to us early on was two things we did that might be helpful to some of those founders or companies that are earlier, or if you're going to look at to join a company, two things that might be interesting. First of all, we wrote a lot. We had a company blog, so you could write, you could be a podcaster. We just wrote a lot about technical content. And all of a sudden, the discovery process for people who want to come work for us really opened up. We had a huge pipeline of engineers from around the world that applied to work for us because they were reading our blog, which was basically free, by the way. Mm -hmm. We were just blogging. Still up today. Yeah, it's still up today. It's we love amazing. our blog. It's, it's amazing. It's it's like a media property. It gets a lot of view, viewership, shared. It's part of our DNA. Can I actually interrupt you? Sure. In some way, hearkening back to our conversation, is this not a way of spotlighting the builders? in your company? Is this not your own way of taking the spotlight or the microphone in this case away from you and going to the people that you want to speak to and they want to hear from the voices that aren't yours? I like that. Yeah. I had not thought of it that way, but I, I love that notion. And I think it's this idea of anybody with a voice or an idea could write on our blog and they really do. People who authored those content, it's, it's all authored by them. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. So we started to do that. And that was not, we didn't, 
He did not come out of our marketing team. I mentioned Matthew, who's my business partner. He's our CEO. He's an extremely good writer. So he started to write a lot for the blog. And our CTO, John Graham Cumming, was very early at Cloudflare employee number, I think 24-ish. And he is a very good writer. And they're both technical. And so they used to write a lot early on. And what was interesting is it started a flywheel. Other technical folks started to apply to work for us because they were reading the content. And they said, hey, could I write too? And I remember we were about 65 people and we had a really senior person from Apple who wanted to come and work for us because he's like, I can't write anything at Apple. I mean, great company, just different culture, right? I can't publish anything publicly. And it was a way that became a differentiation. So it helped with this talent early on. So that was one thing that really, I think, took something that was really hard. That's a hard challenge for most early stage companies, the talent acquisition, and I think de-risked it for, for us a little bit, which were which I think is clever. The second thing that was really interesting is back to this mission to help build a better internet, because we help make the internet faster, safer, and more reliable, and we were powering a lot of uh, websites early on and applications and serving a lot of page views and requests, and we kind of had this counter that was really going up and to the right. The scale ended up being our best friend. Because a lot of people, even though we maybe were early, only had a few people, a couple dozen people in at Cloudflare, we didn't have a lot of revenue yet, but we worked at huge scale. And that ended up being a huge talent acquisition magnet too. So I think those two things helped tilt the risk reward in our favor on Meaning that front. people are excited of the ambition of the scale of the project. And that there was traction and that there was going to be hard problems and that wow, you actually have people using what you're building. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I want to come build a firewall for the internet. Yeah, I want to come build a load balancer for the internet. Yes, I want to come build zero trust for the internet. And it wasn't, again, when you're 40 people, you don't have revenue to point to, or you don't. You have 40 people. It's a pretty small team. Mm-hmm. Again, these folks have other, are highly employable. The people you want to work at your company are highly employable. And so it was interesting to be able to say, hey, but we have a million page views. We have 5 million page views. Hey, now we're doing 25 million page views. What? Like, why is it growing so fast? Because we had a lot of internet properties that were adopting our service and signing up for our service. And that did make a lot of people interested in saying, I want to come work here and help solve these problems that you're facing as you grow your business. How much of internet traffic approximately is going through Cloudflare? About 20%. 20%? Yes. That's stunning. It's stunning. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's a big responsibility. What does that mean? 20% of internet traffic is going through Cloudflare. What does that mean? So what does Cloudflare do? Interesting. When I used to say, hey, we're helping build a better internet, I'd go to a dinner party and they'd look the other way. I think the internet (laughs) is much more appreciated today than when we started 10 years ago, where we rely on it a lot more. At the end of the day, the internet's only about 30 years old and it was never designed for what it's become. And you think about how often we rely on the internet on our daily basis. It's a lot. For every single person in society, you're using your phone, your laptop to do something all the time. Same for businesses. Business, it's, you know, the internet's become the lifeblood of, of how businesses conduct you know, communications and workflows and what they're doing. It's everywhere. It's really permeated our lives. And it's becoming more and more important. And so if you go and say, okay, well, the internet's here, it's here to stay, it's not going back. It's not going to any, this idea we're going back to kind of an analog world, I just don't think is the case. It's going to become more important to all of us, not less important. And it's become much bigger than they originally thought when they designed it. They designed it to connect academic institutions. That's what the internet was originally designed for, to share research among academics. And now it's one of the most important things we use on a daily basis in business and and for every single person around the world. It's like a whole other stratosphere. And so what Cloudflare does is we help make the internet faster for everyone using it. We help provide cybersecurity solutions. And if you go look at the original designs and specs of the internet, security said to be completed at a later date. And it was never 
built with some of the layers of security it needs as it's become what it has today. And same with reliability. The internet's incredible. It's We talk about many, many podcasts of how it works. But in some ways, you're like, wow, I can't even believe it works at all. It's like really kind of held together a little bit with like it's, it's, it's pretty fragile. And so this idea of a service like Cloudflare saying, hey, if you are a developer putting your next potential startup idea online, Cloudflare will help make sure it's safe, fast and reliable. It's almost like a digital armor or digital bouncer for the Internet while also being a personal trainer for anything connecting to the Internet. Turns out every single thing connecting to the internet needs to be more safe, faster, and more reliable. And so we're kind of layering in a lot of the parts of the internet that you didn't, that they would have done from the beginning if we knew what it was going to become. And so when you say, what does 20% mean? It's that it's, it's just a lot of requests. Like we're powering a lot of, we're kind of sitting as a immune system, making things faster and more reliable for all of our us legitimate visitors. So if we're connecting, you know, if you're on vacation in Europe, you're having a great experience. In Africa, you're having a great experience. Asia, wherever you're on vacation, faster, more reliable experience. Versus if you're an attacker trying to do something nefarious, we stop you much closer to where the source is. And all of a sudden you're like, that makes sense. So it's kind of, it's, it's back to a digital balancer and a personal trainer for the internet. It turns out everyone using it needs that. Even today, listening to you describe it, it's not the sexy, like, it's like emergency for the internet, you know, emergency with the C, with the whatever. Yeah. And that's not like this glamorous pitch. It's almost doing the hard infrastructure work that just needs to be done. Well, you said the word infrastructure, which which it is. We, we build infrastructure for the internet. Yeah. And it turns out the internet's really important, becoming more important every single day. Yeah. What's interesting, the last couple of years with the pandemic, we've realized how important, how much we rely on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the pandemic without the internet, how much harder it would have been. Yeah, on, DOA. It would have been really, really hard. And so in many ways, I mean, after the frontline responders and all of the healthcare responders, I mean, they deserve all the credit. But all of the network engineers and IT administrators that held the internet together during the pandemic where traffic basically doubled over two weeks because we all sudden moved doing what we used to do on a daily basis online. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Like I think it kept a lot of us together and connected in ways that we never really thought. There's a lot of beauty. I hope there's a lot of plays that get written about it and, and movies that get written about the beautiful side of what we saw. The infrastructure behind the scenes, it's like all the roads, the tunnels, the bridges that make all of that work. And when it works, it's magic. Really, you don't even know we exist. But when something breaks, it's really, really hard. And I think there's a really good analogy to the physical world where when you drive around a city, it's functioning good, public transportation, good. You don't even think about it. But when there's a traffic jam, you can't get to where you're going. Your blood is boiling. It's a, it's very similar to the online world, there's the stuff doesn't just happen. And we are one player in a very large ecosystem, but we play a really important role and we take it really, really seriously. And one thing back to this helping to build a better internet, which I think is super cool about this infrastructure, you know, okay, who cares you're building infrastructure? No, it matters so much is we have a free service and then we have $25 a month service, $250 a month service up to enterprises paying us millions of dollars a year. It's a really horizontal need versus, you know, you could be a nonprofit trying to do something online to the Fortune 1000. And we basically have a service that helps everybody. And then back to, well, that's actually really cool that you're building infrastructure that's available to everybody around the world. There's something really, really impactful about that. And so we've cared about that from day one. Lots of people that work at Cloudflare care about this. They're really proud of it. They choose to work at our company because of this. And 
it's okay if people don't realize the importance of it because a bunch of people do and we're helping solve businesses with a lot of problems, help modernize what they're doing in the enterprise, help modernize their IT stack, help modernize how they run their businesses. And one thing I know for sure is the internet's becoming more important every single day, not less important. And if you're connecting to the internet, you need a service like Cloudflare to help make it fast, safe, and reliable. And so we take that work really, really seriously. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, if people start knowing what you do, and like that's not necessarily a good thing, you know, like as, as soon as you get the spotlight on you, usually it's not for a good reason when you're an infrastructure company. This started at Harvard. Well, Matthew and I met at Harvard Business School. We were doing our MBAs, uh, and that's where we met, and that's where the idea started to get some traction. And then we quickly moved out to the Bay Area in the summer of 2009 to say, hey, can we take this idea and make it a reality? And our third co-founder, Lee Holloway, was living out here. And, you know, one thing we, assumption we knew early on, because, you know, we get asked this question a lot is, if Cloudflare was going to work, one of our assumptions was it would be a very big company or not exist as a company. It didn't really make sense as a medium-sized business because the way that we make the internet faster, safer, and more reliable is we built the globe big network. We we have to process a lot of traffic and that's how we kind of spin it. You know, we make it more shiny. We keep the un, unsavory actors out. And we knew that that required a lot of CapEx. There was a, there's a real CapEx expense to our business. And so we were going to build this global network and then a lot of people had to use it. So our, our assumption early on was that it was either going to be a big company or not exist. And so back in 09, when we started to work on this idea and it was, you know, the start of the rise of cloud, was we needed to be somewhere where not only do we have access to capital, because we knew we needed venture to, to build, to invest, to help us build out this network, to help cover this CapEx cost, but also could we get access to the talent of what it looks like to work, work at internet scale? And, you know, back to my this point of about 20% of the internet is using Cloudflare of the web. It's a huge number. You said, wow, it's a big, you need people who can understand that scale. It's a huge number. And it's just different than if you build something that 10 people use. Yep. It's just a very different scale and yep. whatnot. And so we came here purposely because back in 09, it was the best place for both the capital and the talent who understood how to work at true internet scale because of all of those amazing growth companies ahead of us. And tell me if this is true or not. I heard it in passing, but... Matthew, your co-founder, and his mom, your mom, drove your U-Haul together across the country? Okay, so part of that is true. You got some of your research true. Some. So Matthew and his mother uh-huh. packed up our stuff in a U-Haul. We, we graduated from business school without very much money. So we were pretty scrappy, I guess is the right way to, the right terminology. And so... We were living in Boston and we said, okay, let's, we're going to go to the, the valley to try and make our idea work. And so how do you get your stuff from Boston to Silicon Valley is uh, Matthew and his mom said, oh, we'll drive it with a U-Haul. So they packed up, you know, my desk, like uh, packed up all our stuff in their U-Haul and they drove it from Boston to San Francisco. And for those international visitors, like that's, I don't know, 6,000 miles. It's far. It's, far. It's, it's, it's across the country. It's a, U.S. is a huge country. And so they, they did that over the course of the week. I was very grateful that, you know, I showed up in San Francisco and my stuff was here. Actually, I was just thinking of funny, as I was driving your offices in South Park here in Soma, for those of you who've been to Soma, which was really the epi- epicenter of the last 10 years of growth companies, which is amazing right now. It looks very different. And I was just driving by and there used to be this Italian restaurant on Third Street called La Bricola. And it was actually um, Matthew and his mom showed up, unpacked the U-Haul and they were starving and they kind of used Yelp back in the summer of 09. And this Italian restaurant was having a soft opening 
And it was called La Bricola. And so him and his mom basically went there for dinner that night that they were unpacking the U-Haul. And for many years, La Bricola was the Italian restaurant we went to to celebrate any sort of cloud for milestone because it was just part of this history from the U-Haul no from really early on. But now I see it's closed. And and so on my drive here, I, I just saw it as I was driving here to speak with you today. And I thought, oh, it's the end of an era. That's adorable. I know. It's good. See, you know, that's the thing. You know, building companies is a little bit about storytelling. Yeah. And it's a good story, it right? Good it's story. a good story. And, and I think back to, you know, Cloudflare wouldn't be, what you know, without that U-Haul story, without Labricola. Where did you move? For many years, I lived in Soma and so did Matthew. And, Why? Know, well, I mean, so many different reasons. There's so many different reasons. Uh, for me personally, there was something really nice about walking to work. I mean, we were working a lot of hours. The four-day work week was not my experience as an early stage founder. We could talk a whole other about that. But that it's, it's a lot of work building something. And we worked really, really hard and long hours. And so at first, our first office actually was down in Palo Alto because Lee was living in Santa Cruz. His wife at the time was doing her PhD down at UC Santa Cruz. So he was living in Santa Cruz and Matthew and I were living in Soma. And so the reason we picked Soma was we were close to the Caltrain yeah. and we could go down and we had an office in Palo Alto. It was right on Emerson Avenue. That was back in, again, we got that office in 2010. Facebook had a bunch of space and Palantir, all these companies oh, yeah. that you, you know, are, are big deals now. I mean, yeah. Facebook at the time was a big deal then too. And, you know, we felt like we were really in the heart. And then very quickly we moved up to the city about a year later because Lee's wife was finishing her PhD. And so they were going to move to the peninsula and, and we quickly moved the office to, to San Francisco. So at first I lived here because I could walk to the Caltrain station and then it just was really intense. And so being close to work was nice. And then very quickly, I had two kids. I had both of them building Cloudflare. And one of the ways that I made having a family and kids, young kids and work work was I had no commute. I literally lived across the street from my office for the longest time. It took me 60 seconds to get from work home or home to work, which meant I had a lot of time to be at home with my kids. I had a lot of time to be at work and do a good job. And I just cut out the commute because I literally had done. But I had to sacrifice living in a really cool neighborhood. That's right. That's right. Well, now you get to live in a cool now neighborhood. Now I live in a cool now neighborhood. You, and so it's it's just, I think that there's decisions you make. You make you live what you make the best of the decisions you make. And you had kids how many years into your Cloudflare tenure? So we're 12 years old. So we moved here in the summer of 09 and took us a year to kind of get organized. We launched at TechCrunch Disrupt, which was back to end wow. of an era. I mean, we have like so many of the bingo cards of the <laughs> of the of our cohort. The things that you'd see in the Silicon Valley TV show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We were we lived that charmed existence to a T. And so we launched in September of 2010 at TechCrunch Disrupt. We actually came up in second at the Battlefield competition. You did? We Who, did. Who'd you lose to? Do you remember? Oh my gosh. It's blanking on my name right now. It, um, uh, if you remember it, tell yeah, me. I will. I will. And they ended up, uh, I can I can see it in my head. I just can't come. I haven't thought about it for a while. But they ended up selling to Yahoo and uh-huh. you know, interesting company. But Flickr? Wasn't Flickr? Okay, it, anyway, it, it was anyway, one. No, we're it's, not going to harp on it. Does, yeah, it doesn't matter. But uh, we we were second, and and I think we it was funny. We we got second back to Labricola. Went for dinner that night. We were kind of bummed were you out. Stoked? We were, well, we were we were stoked that we got to the finals for sure. We were very disappointed that we came in second. I mean, you don't go to these things thinking you're going to come in second. You go to win. Or Matthew and I showed up to win. Like we we. How we, was the business doing at that point? Back in the day, it was we had just we had been running a private beta. So we had basically had run a private beta for six months. We basically launched on stage yeah. at TechCrunch Disrupt. And this is back to this really cool story where the way that this battlefield competition worked, and again, you wouldn't do this now how you launched your company, but back then it was a great way. 
we pitched on Monday and then we got invited back to the finals on Wednesday. So they, I think there was 24 or 30 companies and they whittled down to the final six. And between Monday, we had run a private beta. So we had about a thousand websites and applications and APIs that were using our service when we had launched and we had told the world what we were doing. But in many ways, TechCrunch.org was a great place for us to launch Cloudflare because it was all of these technical folks. Right. And to this day, I can't, there, I go places that like, I first heard about you at TechCrunch Disrupt. I mean, just people have been following us since. But what's interesting, two days later, we came back to pitch in the finals. And if you just look at our growth numbers over those two days, it had been like growing like a weed. We just had signups and really it hasn't stopped. It's been up and to the right ever since, which is a good, really good place to be as a founder. That's what you want. It's like that hockey stick up and to the right. But we went to Labricola the night that we lost, which we are proud to be in the finals. Disappointed that we got second. Exactly. And the next day we decided, you know what, we got to declare this a victory. So we put out a press release declaring victory that we had come in second. Isn't it funny as you reflect that in the moment when you lost, it probably felt horrible. It probably felt like the business is up. It's over. You know, I go back to you've been building this for 12 years. When are you not just getting started? And you're like, hey, we've been building this for, you know, 365 days times 12 years. And each of these days in a microcosm, it's so up and down that you think back on that now. And it's such a small thing, but probably in the moment that wasn't your lived experience. And you can reflect back on it and laugh. It's interesting over a long enough time horizon how insignificant pretty much everything is, but in a more condensed time horizon, everything is carries such significance where as a founder, your day-to-day is how your day is experienced. And so when you look back, you kind of just add up every day as opposed to just looking back in a holistic timeline. Does that make sense? It does. And it's it's interesting. I would take it even one step further, which makes it even more complicated because it's part of the implication. What you said is as a founder or a leader or an early stage employee or as a spouse to somebody who's doing this. I mean, there's lots of people who are or an investor or an advisor, whatever it is, is the founders have to get really good and leaders at these companies because, again, it really they play a huge role. you got to get really good at does this really matter or not? As you said, when you scroll out, some of these little things don't end up mattering. And so if everything is a fire drill, you really burn out. You burn you out, you bring your team out. And that's actually what happens to a lot of founders is like they just get burnt out because they just like are everything. They live and die by the sword. They live and die by the sword of the fire drill. So you got to figure out, actually, that's too bad. That's disappointing. I wish it hadn't done that way. But okay, if you zoom out, we're going to be fine. Okay, so there's like that. But on the other side, if you don't care about every little thing, you could also kill your company. And I just look back to some of the most important moments of Cloudflare's history. It is the smallest little thing that was a bit flip that ended up being part of something that ended up being something really big that actually did matter a lot. And Where so if you weren't obsessing over that detail, never would have caught it. Exactly. And so I think it's this thing of like sweating the details matters but you can't sweat every single detail. And at some point you got to hire the people in on your team and be like, okay, I need you to empower to sweat the details. And then you get to the point where I think we're getting more things right than wrong. And if you get something wrong, okay, I'm going to go fix that. But that's really, really hard to learn. And it's really hard to teach. But like at the end of the day, some of these things really do matter. A bunch don't. How you decipher, well, that requires some judgment. Yeah, and I think going back to our earlier conversation on hiring people, enabling them, and letting them be great, part of it is that this is your baby. You have two babies at home, and then you have a baby across the street. And 
the way that that shows up is you know that really nobody can sweat the details like you can. And if they do, it's learned over time watching you sweat details over and over and over again. And that becomes almost a cultural attribute that they then can imitate. But that doesn't start that way. It's just by default, they can't care that much. <laughs> you know, they don't have the context. They don't have the history. So I, I do think that's also part of the struggle is, I don't know, it's a struggle. It's a balance. It's a struggle. It's a balance. But if you can get it right, it can be really, really powerful. And I think that's a personality trait. I think there's some people who just take a lot of agency and ownership over what they do. In life, there's just some people who are like, when they sign up for something, they do it 125% no matter what. Not everyone's like that. And again, it's, it's not, it's just, I think some people have that. And so if you can spot it during interview processes, you can say, hey, I want you to own this. I want you to run with it. Like, I do think that's interesting. I think for others, they can learn it by watching others or being trained through systems that your company build. But at the end of the day, you need diverse skill sets. Not every single person can be like that because you can miss a lot of things and or you burn everyone out or everything's a fire drill. And well, actually only five of those 20 things are like the other things let's just not worry about because we really got to focus on those five. And so it, it is a bit of a balance. Honest question. Okay. In this day and age, Knowing what you know now about the way that you started the business, moved from Boston in a U-Haul that you didn't even move across the country, living across the street, raising the two kids in Soma across the street from your office, would you trade that again? Meaning, would you go build this company remote today? Oh, oh, okay. That's a different question. Uh, what did you I, think I was going to say? Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say, "Would you do it again?" And then I said, "Today, I would say absolutely." If you'd asked me four years in, I don't know, but I probably would have asked her a different. Let's get to that after. Sure, sure. After, would you okay. would you build the company remote? Because actually, this company is generally a pretty good company. I put in air quotes to build remote by a lot of the characteristics that I see today. What do you think? Yeah, well, we're very distributed. Today. And, and we run, and the internet runs 24 hours a day, seven days right, a week, exactly. 365 days a year. And so we're very distributed. We have teams following the sun around the world by design based on what we do. Back in 2009, I wouldn't, I would have made the same decision because back in 2009, this was the best place to build a company like Cloudflare, both from the cap access to capital and the talent. You know, I was talking about how we originally blogged a lot and that was how we got some of these amazing internet scale engineers to come work at Cloudflare early on, even though we didn't have a reputation. I mean, I think differently now, I think if Matthew and I started a new company, we have a reputation. People would come work for us because right. we had a success story. We didn't have a reputation back then. So it was just a different calculus. And I think that scale helped. And so for a long time, actually, this is not the case anymore, but for a long time, our average engineer moved 1,500 miles to work for us. We were really good at relocating people to the Bay Area to come work at Cloudflare. And what's interesting is, and for a long time, we had a bunch of engineers from South Africa. I mean, South Africa to Silicon Valley is very far. Like Cape Town to, to or South Africa to San Francisco, very far, but we you know, had some bunch of Go engineers who read our Go blog post back in the day and they applied and we part of it was we were really good at immigration early on because I was Canadian and one of our early employees <laughs> was an amazingly talented engineer from France. So we knew how to do get visas for fo or we, we tried our best to do that. And so immigration was not a big deal. And so we actually had people move and Back then, and this was kind of the golden era of San Francisco, I would call it if you were into tech and building companies, people wanted to move here because it was the epicenter. People wanted to move here. And so have, giving that chance, it was a benefit. It was a feature, not a bug, I would mm. say. 
very different calculus today. So very different today. But back in 09, I think it was a great decision. And you know, I remember we were talking to our advisors at school, and this is back to, this is a good lesson for everybody in their life is you got to be careful who you take advice from, including me, by the way, where you ask 10 smart people who have built successful companies you or have a great life, they'll tell you 10 different ways that they did it. And so there's lots of ways to be successful. But when you're starting Cloudflare, we're like, where should we move? And we did not have an affiliation to San Francisco at the time. I mean, Lee was here, but I think that was on the table heat move. People are like, oh, you should stay in Boston. You should move to Atlanta. There's a lot of cybersecurity expertise in Atlanta. But for us, it was capital, internet scale, engineering that and talent that brought us here. And back then, it was the best choice. I think very different today. For founders starting today, I think there's a lot more options. I don't necessarily think any of them are easy paths because I think starting companies are hard. But there's a lot more ways where you can start a company and build it. And it doesn't require moving the 1,500 miles to San Francisco. I don't disagree with that, especially once product market fit is defined and the company has real scaling requirements to hire tons of people very quickly. What I will say, and then we can put a bow on this like remote thing because I could go on for another episode on just this. I think you uh, could. Uh, yeah, it's like obviously something that I think a lot about. But all of this talk about how it's not the epicenter and how it's a bug, not a feature anymore. Okay, like, fine. Like, I think it's all fair. Like, given the choice, I also wouldn't be in San Francisco. I would probably be somewhere else, you know, but I choose to work at Kleiner Perkins and we're all here. And I actually think a lot of venture capital firms still embody that spirit of being in the Bay Area. Like, most of the investors I know are here. And I would say I'm 116 episodes in. By the time this releases, we'll be at maybe 120 of what I think are some of the most prolific operators ever in technology. 98% of them live right here Mm -hmm. within 45 minutes of where we're sitting. Yes, it's a power center. It still is. Oh, for sure. And so I think like, okay, I live here because I'm desperate for any competitive advantage that I can possibly get all the time. And if I'm a founder, I'd probably think pretty similarly. And as I think about, okay, well, if I want to go seek out Michelle and I'm starting to hit scale, boy, it would sure help if I could go get coffee with her five minutes from her house, you know? And I feel the same way about the investors. I just generally feel the same way about the entire community. Back in 09, 1,000% agree. And I, it's definitely still a power center. It's less true today than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. And so the question is, 10 years from now, will it continue to be less true, giving room for other cities and regions of the world to create other folks and at like places, other new power centers? That doesn't mean this will continue to be a power center for sure, but I think there's a lot more today than there were compared to 12 years ago. I totally agree. So the question you thought I was going to ask you, uh, which is an interesting place to go, is four years in, if I asked you, would you do it all over again, you would, what would you say? Well, the, the reason why I bring that up is, I mean, we're a huge success story. I love my job. I'm very lucky that I get to do what I get to do. And yeah. and I, you know, I have, I'm, I love my personal life. I love my professional life. I like the people I get to work with. I like what I get to do. I'm really lucky. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the case, but... I remember I went to a dinner about four years in and it was a small group dinner. And I said at the dinner, I said, I don't understand why anyone starts companies. It's so much work. Like it's, I mean, again, it's so much work. All the problems are yours. Even when you have great people, it's never ending. You know, the bar keeps going higher and higher. And four years in, 
mean, sure, now we're a huge success story, but four years in, it was, you know, we were success, but it was still just really, really hard. And I remember someone at the door saying, you can't say that. Yeah. And, I, and I said, well, I just don't. I mean, you could go work at a company, you get paid really, really well, and you don't have to have all of the burden that comes around with starting the company. There's a lot of, there's a lot of responsibilities, back to your question earlier on. And I think that sometimes that doesn't get talked about enough. I think early on, your mental fitness as a founder early on, being an early stage employee, it's a lot. I personally think that the venture capital world can do a lot more. I think there could be a whole, there's more today than there was, a lot more research and writing and how you go through that very specific time of a company where it's early, it's so demanding. It's all these stresses. You're asked to do things that are kind of not realistic, but when you do it, it's, gosh, this huge endorphin high that you're like, hey, let's go do it again. And then all of a sudden you keep doing the unexpected and unexpected and you've built something really, truly unexpected in a pretty short period of time, often eight to 10 years. It's amazing, but there are cost sides to it. And I don't think we understand enough of the hardship involved. And I think there's a lot of opportunity with that. And it'd be great to see if we could help the next generation of founders be better equipped to not only handle the high, because the highs are great. There's lots of highs, but actually, sometimes you see the worst of people during the best times. You let them go to their head. They do really crazy things. They make bad decisions in all the frothy times, as well as handling some of the shadow sides of coming with all the hardness of coming with building a company. So I think that there's a lot that we as an industry can do for the next generation of founders. I'm really glad you're saying this. It's actually a big reason why I started this show. And it's because I've often thought, I actually think, generally speaking, the firm believes that the professional is overexplored and the personal is underexplored right. in the company building journey. Yes. And when you hear the stories, it's actually worse than that because not only is the professional overexplored, but it becomes a reconstructed narrative from the builders or the founders or the operators where 10 years later, the way that the story is told, and I actually think it's equally as much fault of the storyteller as those that are telling the story, like meaning both sides of this table, where it's framed in this way where the ball just bounced their way. And I'm like, wait a second, I know this person. That's not how the story went. Why are you telling the story this way? And it's because there's this pressure where if you say anything other than, hey, this was a great ride, it's almost like you're ungrateful. It's almost like you're ungrateful. And I think that is a tremendous disservice. So on the professional side, I think we should talk way more about the challenges tactically of building the company, not just the opportunities and how things went well. And then I think on the personal side, my argument is that it's actually harder on the personal side than it is on the professional side, especially because people like you and Cloudflare have laid the blueprint. You have shown like, this is what high growth looks like. This is how you hire. These are the best practices. There's even best practice on if you're building a remote company, this is what it looks like. The first wave of tech companies like yourself have already shown a lot of the best examples of how to do this on the professional side. Yet on the personal side, we don't get to hear from you on like, I don't know if I would have done that. I don't know if I would have done this if I knew what I knew. And I think that's a shame. Keep telling your podcast. You got a lot of stories left to told because I, I 100% and research and teachings. And like, I think that there's can be frameworks that people can use. And because this is something I care a lot about. And so uh, two professors at our school, but one, Tom Eisman wrote a book, Why Startups Fail. It's a really good book. I highly recommend everyone read it. And actually he has a whole chapter dedicated to how founders dealt with failure. I think it's great. 
it's almost like, okay, when things don't work out, here are some of the tools you have and how you can think about it. It's really important. We should normalize more of that and have frameworks and systems. Because there's a bunch of people who do things that don't work out, but I think it feels really lonely back and you internalize it and you take it really personally. And so he has a whole kind of third of his book dedicated to that, talking to founders where things didn't work out. And we need more of that, more of that research and more of that learnings and whatnot. I also think on the flip side, my other thing that I think is really interesting is more founders create and build earlier in their careers. And I think also with crypto, you know, there's just a lot of wealth got created. A lot of founders created things, a lot of wealth. Well, last year was very frothy, less so right now, but anyhow, there was a lot of wealth created where all of a sudden people are like, where do I evolve to next? What do I do next in my career? Like maybe I built something, I sold it, I did this, I'm looking for my next thing. I actually think there's a whole narrative and framework around what do you evolve to, especially as people have more and more hits earlier in their career, where you you aren't going to retire and be on a beach. There should be a whole other next act, next mountain to climb. I think we have a lot of uns. We don't even have the right words or messaging to talk about that yet. And someone like Serena Williams, who just retired, I thought it was interesting. She wrote that essay in Vogue that was really interesting. But just more and more people are talking about it. I talked to a lot of founders who are like, I'm not done. Maybe some want to become investors. Maybe some will do board work. But some who are still pretty young are like, no, I don't know. And I'm not going to go and try and top what my first company was or my second company was, but I want, I'm still have something in me. I really think that's a whole other area to explore too. Couldn't agree more. On your original point, I call it the airplane effect. Okay. And in Silicon Valley, there's this weird thing that happens where, you know, when you're on a plane and you look at a plane that's flying by you and you're like, gosh, that plane's going so fast. But that's just relative to your perspective being in this plane, like you're going the same speed, but it seems like every other plane that flies by you is going so much faster than you. And it's this weird thing that happens here, it makes the problem worse is maybe my point. It exacerbates it because when you go to the dinner parties, again, there's this pressure that everyone feels where you can't talk about like everyone's killing it. You can't talk about how things aren't going well. Everyone somehow is killing it way better than you. And you're telling the story too of like things are going great. Da, da, da. Meanwhile, you just had to like you're dealing with your top engineer just left yesterday. <laughs> you know? And so your lived experience is, boy, I don't feel like I'm killing it today, you know? <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And the, that's the figure out how you handle all that and deal with all of that. The you know, the other thing that's really interesting is I didn't really appreciate this when I was a when I started Cloudflare, but I quickly came to appreciate it once we were scaling, a scaling company. So past hundred million on the way from hundred to a billion in revenue, you realize you're building a business. And when you have a business, so at first it's you have product market fit. Like uh-huh. you have this idea, is is there actually an idea that's valid here is, is kind of phase one. But once you realize, okay, there's a valid idea here. Okay, we got to build a business around it. That's different than, hey, is there an idea? Is there like a problem to be solved? We're still geeks at heart, super technical, build infrastructure on the internet. You know, we make DNS jokes at Cloudflare. Like, I love it. We're like super nerdy. Like, I, like I'm very proud of that. I love that. But like at some point, you don't get measured on how cool your technology is. And I think in sometimes people are all about how cool your technology is. I mean, our technology is super cool. But at the end of the day, you get measured on how good of your business looks. 
And business is much more easy to compare company to company. What does your revenue growth look like? What is your gross margin? What are your expense lines? Are you profitable? Are you not? These are how you start to get measured. And I think that's hard for a bunch of founders too, because they're like, okay, but our tech is really cool. It's like, yeah, but how big is the business? Well, like the business metrics. And so you kind of almost love the business metrics as much as you love the tech. And if you only love about the business metrics, I think you miss out on a lot. If you only love the tech, I think you miss out on a lot. And so really a combination is how do you marry the both? So when you go to that, when you go to those dinner parties and even if your top engineer left, you're like, okay, that's a bummer and we got to get better at that, but we're still going to be okay and we still have a great company compared to what is top quartile. Because back to what's your measuring stick? How do you know whether you're doing great or not? It, it's kind of human nature to be like, okay, we're, we're doing really well and this is how I know we're doing really well. Shortly after your Series C, yeah. you had a board meeting and the business was doing very well. So I think we're pulling on a similar thread here. Can you talk about what did you do in that board meeting? You were so keen on making sure that you weren't just framing it as everything's going great. Well, so it's interesting. Back to you learn a lot about people in good times and bad times. You really do. And what's one someone it was the it was the dean of the Harvard Business School that made this comment once that really like struck me. And sometimes I think about these high flying companies that have these disastrous fails. And I think, oh, maybe that's why. And he said, actually, often in bad times, leaders really step up and do the right thing. Often in bad times, you see people step up and do the right thing. It's much more infrequent that in good times, leaders step up and do the right thing, which is interesting. They kind of let it go to their heads sometimes, like they're infallible, all these sorts of things. And so back to post our Series C, things were going really well. We were up and to the right, kind of since we'd stepped on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt, our numbers had gone up, we were hiring, we'd done a lot of the right things. So we were, I think, getting outsized talent for the size of our company. We're getting outsized coverage for the size of our company. We were just, on all the metrics, things were going extremely well. And so what we did was we had a board meeting where we talked about every single meteor that could hurt us or kill us as a company or or hurt us really, not kill us, but all the things, disastrous things that could happen. And it was actually really, really powerful. Early on, we got some good advice from an operator ahead of us who said, hey, look, there's two ways to crash a plane. You can go straight up into the air, you can go straight down into the ground. And it's the same idea of a good pilot wants to be 10 degrees over the horizon. And so for us, the business was doing great, all the metrics were great, but we didn't want us to lose sight of the things that could still go wrong because there were still a lot of risks. And so we put together a board deck talking about you know the six meteors that were in our way. And some were very tangible and others were less. It was you know, at that point, we were a pretty small company, still three founders. You know, if, if the three of us got hit by a bus, that would have been really disastrous. And not just us, some of the early employees, we are a pretty small company. I think there was a lot of concentration among a small group of people at that company back then. And to, you know, patent litigation, to like just different levels of meteors. And we went through and walked through and we said, okay, here's how big of a meteor it could be. Here's what we're doing about it. It was so interesting. After that, our, our board walked up and be like, this is the best board meeting we've ever had. And we were like, really? Anyhow, so, but no one told us to do it. Back to, it just was kind of like back to being an operator, a founder, making yeah. good good judgment. But it was just like, things were good. And, and I think that we often say that to this day, Often I find myself as a founder who's outlived a lot of folks at Cloudflare, back to your point of why you now are in talking to founders is because they have kind of a purview. They say things that others can't say is when everything is going well, it's almost like your job as a leader is to bring the plane back down to make sure you're not losing gravity. It's like, no, there's all, all these risks that can go wrong. The economy can change. This can happen. But then when things are not going so well and every 
business and even really successful businesses, there's a whole list of things not going well, bringing the perspective of, okay, yeah, but there's all these other things. We're going to get through this. And all right, it's not where we want to be, but we have the right team work on it. Let's put together a plan. We'll make, and once we have a plan, we'll make progress against the plan and know we can turn this around. It's almost like you need to be that pilot that just keeps bringing the airplane nose either up or down, depending on where everyone else is in the room. Sometimes I think that's my full-time job. Interesting. uh, Past guest of the show, Tom Mendoza, calls it injecting tension. So when things are going really well, he became very good at injecting tension into the business and he actually learned it from some of the Sequoia folks. I think what is interesting, and I think this is back to not having a known track record coming to the Valley. I mean, one of the things that's amazing is we showed up here and gave Cloudflare a go and we didn't have a track record and we were able to raise money to prove to the world that we could build this opportunity we had spotted. And there's just not very many places in the world where that would happen. And so I like, I'm eternally grateful for how people will bet on the crazy ones or the idea. And like, let's see, let's go give it a go. Show me, show me, here's some money, go show me. Like, I, I think that's incredible. Like really kind of levels the playing field in so many different ways. On the flip side is, you know, it takes a long time for some people to become believers in what you're doing. It's not obvious for a long time. It's hard to spot the winners and sometimes the crazy ones from the realist. And so, you know, I think for us, and we've also gotten a lot better telling the story and whatnot, but there's tons of risk that was in our business early on. And we were servicing the whole internet. We started with a free and a $25 a month, month, now $25 a month service, $250 a month service. And we were opening up this market. And I think there was a lot of folks who just maybe weren't experts in what we were doing saying, well, is this actually going to work? And that was for ours to find the people who said, hey, I want to I want to come along for the ride. If you can make this work, amazing. Yeah. And then over time, we had more and more supporters. And I think one of my biggest lessons learned is even for the people who didn't believe early on, that's okay. You don't take it personally. You don't have to burn yeah. bridges. You can just say, hey, no problem. We'll come back another time. So you brought your kids to the New York Stock Exchange when you went public. Why'd you do that? So important to me. I love what I get to do at Cloudflare, but I also love that I'm married and have two kids and have a family. Like I, I'm equally proud of that. I try and talk a lot about it because I, I want others to know that they can do it too. Um, oh, Michelle did it. So can I. And so I had my son when we had 60 people at Cloudflare, like really early. Uh, Jamie, my husband, he knew when we did Cloudflare as a business plan, he was there. Like he was there from very early. And so bringing them, they're just a huge part of the story. And so that was a big day in mom's life. And I wanted them to be there. I want them to be in the photos. We talk about it. Mom's special day. And they were little. I mean, they may kind of remember. Actually, I was talking to my son about it recently, and he was talking about how good the breadsticks were. I mean, that's what he remembers about mom's special day. But I'm like, if it's about the breadsticks, like, that's fine. And I want them to be in the photos. I wanted them to be there. It was really important for me to celebrate that all together. Why? Why was it important for you to know that this was mom's special day? There's a lot of counter narrative out there that that's just not how it works. And I just, I've always kind of said, there's another path out there that I'm, that I want to forge where I wanted to have a big career. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a a personal relationship where I liked the person I was with. And so I just wanted a counter narrative. It was just important to me. And I just, there's others who I think like that narrative. And I think that hopefully they see me doing it and they are like, oh, great. I can do that too. And sometimes when you can see it, it's easier to believe. And so for me, it's just something I'm really proud of. Sometimes you read the stats or you read the headlines and that's not what they necessarily say. So I just was creating my own narrative that I wanted to believe in. Yeah, I think it's really cool that you did that. I hope more people emulate that. Going back to this thread on 
mostly the founders survive through the scale. Most people just don't in the company. How did you learn? You're the COO and co-founder of Cloudflare. You run what? All go to market. You'd never done that before until Cloudflare. And every year the company is like triple what it was before. Like you've never done that. <laughs> and if you were the operator, you would almost certainly hire on top of you <laughs> to get someone. But that's not how it goes with founders. So how'd you learn? It's so interesting. So I got this advice really early on. It was actually George Lee at the time. He was running investment banking at Goldman Sachs. And one of the things that was great as a founder when you're successful early on is you get invited to really cool things. You know, Kleiner has cool portfolio events and all the venture capitalists do. Silicon Valley has invests for early, you know, for different growth companies. And then the bankers, like the investment bankers like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan, they do these events. And Actually, I found them really, really helpful going to some of those. I mean, you, you, at some point, you get invited to so many things, you can make a full time just going to these things, but you pick and choose. And I used to go and I would learn from those ahead of me. I'd go find the founders a few years ahead or the CROs a couple of years ahead and be like, how do you do that? I literally had my list of questions. So, anyway, so I was at a Goldman Sachs event and George Lee was there. At the time, he was running investment banker. And I, and I just happened to say, and I think curiosity is a good trait in founders, is I said to George, and we were really young. I was just a precarious little founder, very ambitious. I was going to win. And I kind of said to George, I said, George, you've met every single successful founder there has ever been. You know all of the greats. I mean, I read all the Silicon Valley stories just like the rest of us. Like, you know everybody. What sets the great founders apart from the good founders? You know, there's lots of things I forget about Cloudflare's history, but this is like forever imprinted in my brain. And he said, oh, he thought about it. George is a really nice, affable person. He said, you know what sets the great from the good? The rate at which they learn. And to me, that was the best answer ever. Cause I was just like, oh, I'm a really fast learner. I'm a sponge. Like I ask a lot of questions. I, when I feel like, oh, I didn't do that well. I like go in cycles, circles a little bit until I do it better. And so that ended up becoming one of my kind of modes of operating of, okay, rate of what you learn. It becomes really one of your best friends as a growth founder. Because like you said, you find yourself in situations you might have not found yourself in, and maybe the first time you get it wrong. But it turns out you're probably going to find yourself in that situation at a second, third, fourth, fifth time. So if you have a really high rate of learning, you get better. And what I'm just shocked at, and again, I have a big team now. I've hired a lot of people. I've found myself in a lot of different circles over the years. Some people don't learn. They stop learning. They stop growing as a person. If you stop investing yourself in wanting to learn and stop growing as a person, somebody else will do the work and outpace you. It's really surprising to me. So the rate at which you learn, if you are a good learner, can be a huge best friend. It was for me. It was one of the skill sets that absolutely allowed me to scale as a founder and as an operator and something I'm really proud of, like, and I love it. And I still feel like to this day, I'm still learning and, but I love it. Like I, I get so much energy out of that. Can I take that a step further? Okay. So I agree wholeheartedly. Okay. The rate at which you learn is absolutely one of the most consistent themes in the highest performers. I've also noticed that the way in which these folks learn about themselves is equally as important as the way that they learn about the outside world, meaning you can go learn how to build the next year of Cloudflare from the person that's a year in front of you, but if you're not learning about yourself along the way, you're kind of DOA. What I mean by that is if you are growing and scaling what is a significant business at three to five X a year... Number one, it's just growing too fast for you to be able 
to be very self-aware in what's actually happening. People aren't telling you how you're doing. There's just not enough time. And by the time they tell you how you're doing, that's irrelevant because you need to be doing something else for the next six months, right? That's number one. Number two, as the company takes more importance on, you become more important. And the problem with that is now you've hired all these people. They're not telling you how you're actually doing. So you don't actually have the appropriate signals in place like you used to when it was just you and Matthew and your co-founder in a room where you could be very honest with each other to say, okay, how am I actually improving? How am I learning? And so if you cannot learn about yourself, you will reach a plateau of learning because you can't clearly distinguish your strengths and weaknesses and actually move the ball forward. You should keep pulling on that thread. I don't know if I'm equipped or the best person to spar with you on that, but I 100% agree. Like the people who lose touch with reality, you stop getting the signal in and life's a really dangerous place to be. And so maybe just like a couple of data points around that. So the radio rate you're learning is really important. I've been running Cloudflare for 12 years with Matthew. Lee's no longer at the business. We have lots of stability. We bring in new folks. I constantly, and since we've been like 200 people, I've heard this feedback, which I just was really, I didn't understand early on, but I think it's ties to this. People used to say, wow, you and Matthew still show up to work. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, our last founder stopped showing up. And so I think, again, now they don't say that because, you know, we were a big operator, but back, I think there's a lot of founders who stop showing up for work at some point when they get some level of success. That's a dangerous place to be because you don't get the signal. You're not feeling the bumps. You're not feeling the customer issues or the things that aren't going well. Every business has great things. There's a bunch of things that have to be fixed, right? And being there and feeling the bumps, be like, okay, what are we going to do about it? Who's owning it? What are you going to do? Like, And you just have more empathy when you're making decisions and learning about all these sorts of things. So staying close to reality, I think is really important. And to this day, we still show up for work. We hire great people to do their jobs. So we're there involved in, in, in the business. And I think that that can be a founder's best friend or anybody when you feel a little bit out of your domain or expertise, the worst thing you can do is distance yourself. You almost got to go, go harder to the hardest thing. So you're there, but then empower those around you just so you can feel the bumps in the road. The other thing, just on this point about the self-awareness point that you brought up, I always remember on the last day of Harvard Business School, the professors used to give us all speeches. And I took a class like managing in a turnaround. And, you know, Cloudflare is not a turnaround, but it's a really interesting class. This professor, Paul Marshall, he's since retired. He was a very top rated professor at the time. I still remember what he said on this last day of class, like it was yesterday, where he said, Look, all of you are going to be successful in your life. You're going to be more successful than you ever dream of. And that means you're going to have wealth that you create. You can choose to no longer do things on a daily basis. You'll be able to hire people to do these things for you. Get your groceries, how you get from place A to B. This was all before like Uber and Instacart. But his point was true. And he's like, I caution you from distancing yourself from reality too much. You want to stay connected to society and what's going on because you see and feel things differently than if you just are behind a walled garden. I think it's a little bit back to your point about being self-aware. Like if you distance yourself, you stop getting the signal either in your everyday life because of wealth or because you stop putting yourself in the hard situations at work, it's hard to know. And then you start almost this self-fulfilling prophecy if you lose touch with reality. And so I never want to be that person. I like my job. I like working with people at Cloudflare. I like my business partners. I like my life. Like I want to be connected to, you know, where I live and what I do and kind of be part of the world. Mm -hmm. So you had back problems that started to develop during Cloudflare, right? At what point in the company was this? So I was um, in my 30s scaling um, The company was doing well. Oh, we were doing so well. Yeah. 
and I was, I mean, I had two little kids at home and I was working really hard at work. And then any extra time I was with my kids and my husband, like that was kind of how my life was set up. And I cut out any other thing out of my life. Cause I just, there was just, it was almost like a math problem. And that included exercising, working out. Cause I wanted to be with my little kid. Like I wanted to be with my kids at two. I wanted to hang out with them. And anyhow, long story short, I think it's cause I had two kids. I wasn't exercising. A lot of my core th- strength had gone and I ended up with a back issue. And I had ne- I have always been really healthy. I played a ton of sports. I had never had any issues. So I didn't even embarrassingly think that was possible. I wish someone had said, you got to take care of your core. Otherwise you're going to, like, that's a risk. That's so, not on the advice bingo card. No, that was not on the <laughs> advice bingo card. So I guess like do your core exercises, especially if you're in your thirties. And so it's interesting. So I had this back issue and it was awful. I actually ended up wasting, I mean, I lost a year of my life. That kind of sounds dramatic. I'm not really a dramatic person, but I did. It took a year out of my life. And the pain, it was just awful. Everything about it was awful. I mean, there I have stories about going to works back then. Being remote was not a thing. We went to the office every day. I was pretty, I showed up to the office often. And like, I did board meetings lying down because I couldn't stand up. I interviewed people lying down on benches because I just couldn't sit. Anyway, it was, it was stood everywhere, but really it was mostly lying down. Anyway. Long story short, I'll skip a bunch of the story. I ended up having back surgery, which, you know, I didn't really want to do at all. I had to do it. My, my disc was sitting on my nerve, but I'm feeling a lot better now. And, and the moral of the story is I'm a lot fitter and I take this a lot more seriously, but I did lose a year of my life. And didn't it feel especially stupid when all the things that you sacrificed for, meaning like, let's just say in the work context, were going great. Like the business couldn't be doing better. Meanwhile, you're taking meetings board meetings, candid interviews, laying down on your back. Like, isn't that just a funny juxtaposition in your life? It is. And it's just kind of like, you know, the things that you do, what I thought was important. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't wish that upon anybody. And, you know, it was hard. It was hard on my life partner. He had to pick up a bunch and like our childcare help, like everybody, everyone else had to pick up all the slack. It was not great. Good news is is I'm feeling great. And now, like now I am very militant about carving out time for your core for my buff. physical yeah my my core is a lot more buff yeah. uh, for my physical health yeah. I'm way more serious about it and it's on my calendar it's one of those things that doesn't get rescheduled very easily like because I don't want to be I don't want to ever have to go through that again I already learned a lesson I think there's a happy ending to my lesson but I need to play with fate again I'm good so now I take it a lot more seriously and so I try and talk to people about that like when you're a founder you do have control of your over your calendar you've got way more things to do than time to do it but you do have control of your calendar so put the things that you really need to do on there and then fit the rest of around everything else. And for me, making sure I'm carving out time for my physical health is important because then it helps your mental health. And at the end of the day, it's back to, I hope more founders stay in the game longer, on the field longer. I really do. I hope they don't like remove themselves. And that's back to being good learners, being self-aware, feeling the bumps in the road and taking care of themselves. Because it's really hard to start something and build something that you're proud of. So if you have that, try and stick with it as long as you can, because it's a pretty special journey if you can be part of it. I totally agree. I really appreciate you carving out time for us to do this, even as you like to fly under the radar. So I appreciate you. I always end these things the same. The first, are you hiring? Is Cloudflare hiring? Is there any key jobs that you're hiring for that you want to use this platform to shout out? 
rule number one as a founder, always be recruiting. Yeah, so ABR, right. uh, always be closing, ABC and ABR, always be closing, always be recruiting. <laughs> so I'm I'm uh, big on both. Uh, the answer is we're always looking to bring in great people into Cloudflare. I think that the macroeconomic situation has changed a little bit, but absolutely, there's ab- in a growth company, there's always roles that we're looking for. And so if this is something you're interested in from engineering to being a product manager, marketing, our marketing team, product marketing, demand generation, on the sales side, we're hiring a lot. So those are some different, you can reach out to me. I'm Michelle Zatlin. You can find me on LinkedIn. Reach out to me and I read my LinkedIn messages. And I promise you, if you reach out to me, uh, I will take your candidacy seriously. Oh, be careful what you wish for. I know, uh, I know, I know. I'm like, well, anyway, we'll deal with that another time that's if right, it's that's too right. much. Good problem to have. Yes. Uh, last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What does it mean to you? Oh gosh, I love that book, Angela. When I read that it's book, I was like, book. oh my God, I have that. I have grit. I have grit. She still I, uh, won't come on the show. I'm going to get her. You're going to keep going. You're just going to keep going. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You just got to keep at it. Eventually she will. I, um, I'm excited for you. That's cool. Um, she, you should totally come on the show. Great. I mean, there's definitely a definition that she lays out well, but I, it's that perseverance and resilience of that personality trait of like, even beyond things that you control. I have a lot of grit. When I read that book, I was like, I have this. And a bunch of people do. And it's a great characteristic that you can have it. And then wield it in a positive way. Because I think there's also some shadow sides to that personality trait. And so I think, you know, you always want to be careful of the shadow side, the negative side of any personality trait. But that perseverance, the resilience, saying like, hey, I'm going to make it happen. Oh, if you could just bottle that up and sell it, there's there's a business there. There's a business idea for somebody. <laughs> Michelle, I think you have it in spades. I'm so grateful for you doing this. It's just thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And to all the listeners, thanks for tuning in. If I can ever be helpful, reach out. I can't wait to see what you all build. Oh, you're the best. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 